Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, welcome to a Flashback Friday. This episode was released almost exactly two years ago. It's uh, with Jesse Mallon, who is a phenomenal solo artist, was the lead singer in Degeneration, um, has been a friend of mine for many, many, many years, was actually a fan of my very first band that I moved to the city with, which is extremely flattering. Um, he's a great guy. He's always been extremely giving he helps lots of charities. If you look at the work he's done, it's really phenomenal. And unfortunately, he recently had very rare uh, spinal stroke, and um, he's currently paralyzed from the waist down. It's it's tragic, and um, there's a lot of expenses that he just can't that aren't covered by health insurance and things like that. And now is the time for anybody who can help to do so. There's a sweet relief fund set up for him. There's links in our bio, links on our website. Uh, If you could give anything to that, it would be fantastic because if anybody deserves it, it's Jesse. He really does deserve it. Enough of that. Let's listen to Jesse talk. Proceed with caution. All right, we're rolling. Yeah. All right, Jesse, are you proceeding? Are you proceeding with caution, or are you are you feeling bold? I'm feeling good, man. Feeling bold and and old. No, I'm good. (laughs) Older but bolder. Yeah. So how's it been, man? How's how's quarantine life? Well, it was pretty heavy at first. I think I adjusted to it. You know, coming back, it was like. I had like 100 tour dates lined up. I was in the middle of a tour in the UK. It didn't hit Shit. the UK yet. And we came home. We were one of the last planes out of Heathrow. We played on Friday, March 13th. It got home on wow. the 14th. And by Tuesday, uh, the city was like a, a ghost town, Mad Max, uh, very scary place. And and then all the bars and clubs and businesses closed. But um, I started sitting around and not really understand what I was going to do because uh, I'm not good at sitting around my apartment. But uh, <laughs> I right, slowly right. figured it out little by little <laughs> how did you make that decision like like what was going on in the uk uh, were you considering canceling before that like like what what was the situation like and how did you decide well that last week this record was uh my new album is like in 
kind of the early part of the the touring you know, overseas for it for that touring cycle, Sunset Kids record, and yeah. So the shows were doing better than we ever had. They were they were selling out, and all these English fans, especially the the macho blokes over there wanted to shake my hand every night after the show or if <laughs> right, i went out right. to merch and we were getting all these texts from uh from new york like you know come home it's terrible here and and everybody was acting like nothing had happened you know right. it's just like it was yeah. it was really fine um but then suddenly it got to a point where the shows were sold out and they were great but the last three there was about 25% not showing up I and mean, we still got right. their money, but, um, it was, it was definitely weird, but you, you know, enough to do a packed out show and you don't notice maybe 20% or whatever, right, 25%. Sure. But, but then it was like all our friends and family and everybody's girlfriends and wives, you know, you better come home. This is crazy. So we were supposed to come home for a week, go in the studio, work on an album, then come back and then do Europe proper. And then uh, wow. on and on and on. I would, at last week I would have been at the Glastonbury fest, which I was oh, pretty psyched shit. about, but yeah, I yeah. was on my couch doing the Instagram version, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the home version. You could play it at home. It's a little safer and we'll send you the, the, the parts and the instructions. But, but, um, it, yeah, I just didn't really know what to do. And, um, you know, obviously, health reasons and we, we lost some people in the music community i, I yeah. didn't lose any family but people that were close uh hal wilner i knew but i really knew adam from fountains of wayne and, right yeah you know the guy from the arrows i'd seen him play up the road at sidewalk and so you know it felt like this thing there's no method to it there was no just couldn't understand it and and the idea that you know everything would just be be shut like this so my management kind of suggested I go online and I, I do something on my phone or computer and I perform some kind of live stream. And I was very against it because I'm always about like, get out to shows and be with sure. strangers and yeah, yeah. fuck this YouTube home masturbating network. But <laughs> I, um, you know, it, it took a minute. I didn't want to be some guy moaning into his laptop with an acoustic guitar, you know, yeah, yeah. asking for money. But they kind of urged me to do it. And I sat with it and my crew and band, you know, they have kids, some of them, and they're expecting a lot of work. And like you guys know, a lot of artists live sure. week to week, hand to mouth, gig to gig. So I thought, well, I'll take donations and maybe I'll just give the money to the band. And and uh, I set up a microphone and a practice amp. I decided to stand up straight in my apartment and kind <laughs> of uh, I called the show uh, The Fine Art of Self-Distancing yeah, as a, great a joke name. on my, my first name. album. And I just was in my living room and invited all these people. I, I, I'm the guy that can't work the DVD player and the iPhone <laughs> 6, 7, 8 or whatever. So I'm, I'm still like not so tech savvy. And, yeah, I feel you there. So, uh, you know, I, I used to have my girlfriend do all that stuff, but I, I found myself alone at this time, isolating here. So I had to get a tripod from Amazon and, and, uh, you know, and I set up a thing and, and, and I wanted to be not just me playing, but pulling out movies and books and photos and, and kind of make it like, uh, like almost like a kiddie show or something like Mr. Rogers, uncle right, Floyd right, sure. and, and playing songs and telling backstories like and a then, fire, a fireside chat. Yeah, I don't know. I was just in the kitchen here inviting people in. So it went so well because of the you could feel the people. You could feel their energy. Mm. Uh, I couldn't see them. It was a little hard when people weren't applauding it between songs. You didn't know what to say and move on <laughs> right, to the next right. thing. It's like, all right, take a breath. That silence is deafening. But <laughs> but I could see on the chat with my Dwayne readers on that, you know, people were watching from from all over the world and places that we don't normally go to, South sure. Africa, right, Asia, right. Australia. And, 
And then, boom, people were really supportive financially. I was able to cut the band and the road crew some money. And um, it, and we did it again. People like, thank you. So it went on for, for a lot of weeks in the house. And I create these characters on the road when we're bored to, uh, <laughs> to, to keep the band on their toes at rest stops and airports. I put okay. on whatever I can grab, hats, masks, glasses. And I become these characters to embarrass them or, or keep me from being tired. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to bring those characters out into the show. Bob Strauss, the road manager to the stars. And so uh, and take requests on my songs. And and so it kind of built. And now we were the first band to do it in, in uh, one of the clubs that's not allowed to be open or right, it's right. Bowery Electric and do it sure. full band on a network called Veeps. And then it started with me interviewing people like, you know, like this kind of chat. I've had I got Fred Armisen coming on and had Lucinda Williams and, and just friends of mine, Mike Imperioli, mm-hmm. folks that you know, I'm a fan of, but also feel comfortable to shoot the shit with. Yeah, that's cool, man. And how are you, uh, you know, how are you managing like the actual, uh, like physical aspect of doing the Bowerly Electric show? Like, are you, how are you guys practicing? How are you getting in the same room? Like, like, well, how's that, how's that all playing out? We didn't out? do it until, you know, it was just me alone. And then it was me and a keyboard player, him in the kitchen at six feet with a mask on, right. you know, bank robber style or whatever, yeah, but yeah. uh train robber. But then when we moved down to, uh, you know, to Bowery, it was after they allowed 10 people to gather, you know, yeah. um, in, in a way where they could get together less than 10. So we'd have a camera guy, and we'd have a sound guy and then we'd have um, the band and we'd keep it kind of eventually we start having a guest, but we'd keep it under 10, sometimes under eight. And at distance with masks, six feet apart. And, um, you know, we had been with each other through all this, through the crazy times. Of course, every time you step away, you're you're but we kept it to, to guidelines of health and safety by keeping the distance, by um, not breaking the amount of people in the room. And, of course, neurotically, Howard used spraying things down with alcohol and <laughs> high power water guns. And stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you're you know, so you had to deal with the double fallout, right? Because, you know, you lose the touring, but then, you know, you're involved in in uh, a lot of bars and places in the city that, you know, you spent a lot of your life trying to uh, keep packed and sweaty and loud. And then that's the way you like it. Um, So, I I mean, what are you hearing uh, from like a business end for you, like on the other side of things? Is it similar in the reopening that it would be for concerts or is it quite different? We were the first to close and we'll probably be the last to open. Uh, today was supposed to be phase three in New York City, but the right. numbers being up and people acting like jackasses around yeah. the country, they uh, postponed that. And I'm hearing little bits, whispers that it might be months. Um, these rents are insane. Most of the landlords aren't you know, in a position themselves even to give us breaks. And, sure. and uh, you know, these, these joints in New York City are just uh, so, so expensive. So it's been heartbreaking to, to find ways to try to get by. It's month to month. Um, I, I just take it day to day. And, this, you know, if I look too far ahead, I'll have a meltdown. But the clubs have always been a thing. I mean, I started playing clubs when I was 12 years old and yeah. 13 in, in, in my band Heart Attack and CBs and audition nights and A7 and places like that. And then when I got a record deal with my 90s rock band thing, DGen, you know, we, sure. I took some of that money from Sony and I opened a, a place on St. Mark's, Coney Island High, which oh, you yeah. guys heard of and been oh, there, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I know Brad is there. But, um, you know, so we we uh, did that for about five years, but I was on the road and I didn't know how to run a joint. And Giuliani, our, my pal, was a uh, mayor and he was such a 
asshole that he was enforcing laws from 100 years before right, prohibition right, based right. in racism and cabaret jazz. No dancing. So they closed us down for people dancing, which was hard to control. That's like telling people not to laugh. Yes. And, yes. Um, you know, they closed us down. And, and then I, I just didn't really couldn't believe it. It, it. Just seeing that happen was a heartbreak. But we moved on. And me and uh, Buddy, you know, you guys know Johnny T opened Niagara. And yeah. we start eventually having bands there. And then that led to, well, if you got a few people ordering liquor that work for you and a few people doing this, let's open another place. And and then came Bowery Electric, more of a live venue. And I think there's a thing of, you know, when you're not playing music as an artist, you know, you want to sit around and drink and listen to music and talk about music sure, and talk to sure. girls and talk about music and watch bands. And so to have a place seemed like some kind of Sinatra fun fantasy. And and then we uh, we took Bowery and tried to make it a place where we would want to play, you know, like having a bathroom and a dressing room where, you know, it's good size, <laughs> right. having good monitors and a good backline and a loud PA and cold beer and, and just try to create, you know, a spot that would, would be able to put back and have some fun with it. So that lasted a while and, and, uh, and it led to other things, but, but now yeah, it's very uncertain what'll happen. And, uh, you know, we, we just don't know that area on the Bowery starting to look like it did when I was a little kid in the seventies with homeless people all over the right. streets and really yeah. struggling. And, uh, we have a GoFundMe that we've did. And some of my, most of all of my live streams with the fine art of self-distancing go to raise money for Berlin and Bowery. And there's always an option. Even the fans started making these masks that say PMA positive mental attitude and selling them to support the club. But, uh, it's very unknown how long we can, we can get through and, uh, and what the hell's going to happen. I think the whole world and the whole city is going to flip in a very different way. And I just had tour dates that I had from this year on this album, get pushed back to some of them, uh, tour with Brian Fallon to 2021, yeah, which is like, right. it's almost two years from now. I mean, I you know. know, you might have to carry me out there. <laughs> <laughs> And, and how have you nah. been finding like getting <laughs> have you been finding getting information from like the state and the city? Like, do you think um, the way that information is disseminating down to like, you know, club and bar owners is is useful and tactful or is it just like the Wild West out there and everyone's making their own decisions? Um, there's some folks here, a woman uh, on the uh, aerial plants who's on the nightlife committee for the mayor who you know, had one kind of job before this happened and was trying to help us out. She had owned a club before and she okay. ended up in this position. Now she, you know, ended up I was on a Zoom call with 25 club owners right. uh, from the Blue Note to City Winery to Babies Are Right to, you know, Brooklyn Bowl and and uh, and more. And, and it was just uh, I almost cried. When I got off the phone. It was just off the Zoom, these Zoom things. Right, it right. was just so weird. Like it just seemed like nobody and all these people that like places like the blue note. I mean, it's just been there oh, yeah. and it's, it's been hard and no one really knows things change day by day. Yeah. You know, right. the numbers are up, the numbers are down. New York is great. The rest of the world's bad. The, the, the infections are up, but the deaths are down. Like, I think that you know, what, what's happening, you know, everyone is trying to figure it out. I don't think there's one person that, that really has or one government or one city or, you know, I think everyone's just taking the read as it goes. I think maybe they have a more of an understanding, it seems like, from my reading of how not to kill everybody on the respirator and that they have better ways. But more people, there's more tests available, so we're going to see more results. And I think people have been really loose without the masks and stuff. Yeah. Um, on that note, I think that, 
you know, sticking together and, and the live stream thing. I was the guy that, you know, like I said, I feel like a cam girl when I go up there <laughs> and, and, uh, but you know, the, the live stream thing, what's good about it? I guess people could sit in their house, drink whatever they want. They can watch it. I've been going through this thing that the Madden brothers from good Charlotte set up called veeps.com. And we have Murphy's law, the hardcore band from Barry electric yeah. up on there. My live streams are there and it goes around it, but it it's on demand. So you can watch it live with the chat. Uh-huh. Uh, I never uh-huh. thought I'd be saying these words, Snapchat, no chat, <laughs> but people are interacting with each other around the world. The shows, you know, it, you know, we, we have eight cameras, great multi-tracking sound try to make that kind of experience and then you up your merch and you you know you, it's just trying to find ways to stay with your your fan base so we mm-hmm. well, i think a lot of clubs are are doing this this live stream thing i mean we're trying to get creative like we have a johnny thunder's birthday coming up normally that's a big tradition at bowery electric um we're getting some people in a room with you know separate microphones and all that but we're also having people send things from around the world where now everybody's home and how can you really say no unless you are too depressed to turn your thing on but yeah, you know like right. we have steve lillywhite who produced uh, so alone by johnny thunders he sent a message from indonesia um peter uh, parrot like people can send songs and things and we can put a show together in a way that you know it's it's something that people wouldn't be doing without this so we're just trying to find ways to let people know that music is still there you're not alone. Keep the spirit, plug it into something, turn it up loud, jump around in your pajamas, whatever. And uh, in some way, I mean, for me, rock music, since I was a little kid or punk or whatever, the message was always like, you're not alone. There's other people that have gone through this. There's yeah, other, right. Sure. Like, it's okay to be different. It's okay to be scared. Like, And that spoke to me like, all right, I'm going to go into the city. I'm going to find these people that, that right. get that this sucks out here in the boroughs, you know, and yeah, that yeah. there's more to life. That's awesome, man. Do me a favor, backtrack a minute. And can you give me like your like a a little summation of the top three characters like you turn into (laughs) in your band? Like like what kind of stuff are you putting on and what kind and how far do you go with it? I mean, are you just going in a gas station as someone else? Are you staying in character for like many hours or are you playing shows in character? It's mostly Bob Strauss and it's on my Instagram and <laughs> it'll go into gas stations, airports. Uh, you know, well, it's a, he's the road manager to the stars and okay. he's kind of a combination between Rupert Pupkin, Morty <laughs> Arnold from a Billy Crystal special, uh, Broadway Danny Rose, Uncle Floyd. My, I don't know what it is, but, yeah, you know, yeah. people I've seen and uh, he's metrosexual, very open, progressive guy <laughs> and a uh, little old school New York. So I go out on the street and part of it also is taking the phone and interacting with people. The other day, right, Bob yeah. Strauss was out on 7th Street and he saw these kids on the Revel scooters with no mask and he was giving them a hard time and they seemed to like him. So it's just a way to kind of shake things up. And, and you know, I feel like social media is so much about rah-rahs to ourselves and look at me and selfies. And yeah, I was like, sure. if I'm going to have to push myself, I got to make it like funny and, and, you know, so. That sounds great. I'd love to run into Bob one day. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Bob. And, then I heard and he's you're... running for president. Ooh. Oh, he is. Yeah, so he's on screw, the ticket. All right, screw Kanye. Yeah, Rob Strauss, twenty twenty. We got shirts and yeah, <laughs> and with with the show that I do, the fine art of self distancing. Each week we have the interview, like I said, you know, with somebody. Like the next show is Fred Armisen next week. Then we do an album this week uh, coming up, doing Sunset Kids record. Uh, but 
We'll also have a blessing from HR each week that comes on. Uh, my One of my heroes is the kid, the singer of the Bad Brains. He'll come and do a PMA positive, like just message for like 30 seconds. We'll have some kind of bit from Bob Strauss or a comedian, little small things, and then the band performance and an interview with another artist to chat. So trying to make it, you know, have something for everybody, but also these times we need humor. Like I realize, like it can be so serious and there's a lot of great change that's going to happen from this. I'm hoping and, you know, awareness and what's happened with black lives matter and just just people really having the moment to hear things and see things that we were all so busy and it swept under the rug. I think COVID forced a spotlight (laughs) on a lot of stuff. Hopefully our own reflection to, for growth, but um, you know, as well as trying to help make this a better world from injustice and, and the freaking planet, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. No shit. Hey, Brad, yo, this is a good time for your mystery friend. Uh-huh. My friend. <laughs> so Jesse, we have a segment on here. Speaking of changing direction and shaking it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have this segment called mystery friend. And basically I'm going to prompt you about a story from your past and you're going to tell me the story, and then you have to guess who told it to me. Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> Mystery friend. <Now> this is, <laughs> and there is no reward. The funny thing is I, have, I got a couple of these, as you might imagine, and I think I was present for one or two of them, but not this one. Um, Brad, we should really start offering prizes. Go on. <laughs> Who gets the prize? The, the mystery friend or the guest who guesses the mystery friend? The guest who guesses. Mystery right. friend, this is altruism. This okay. is interesting. You guys have done some work on this. I like oh, yeah. It. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so tell us about how you got your buttocks sliced up at Continental. Ooh. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's an interesting story. I used to be wanting to have like some tight cool pants that had cool plaid stripes or you know whatever like to wear on stage so i'd go to like some fabric store on first avenue and i'd buy like cool pinstripes or plaid punk rock style and and i didn't want to be too hot so this guy tony the tiger uh tony the monster he was a a drummer in a band called electric monster electric frankens no electric monster tony tony man he would make me these pants and they would fit the way I'd want them. And I'd get the, the bottom of the legs to be tight and it fit good with the creeper shoe, shoes and, and I'd wear them. And, and occasionally these pants would, would blow apart. I was once in Texas and I did a jump in the air and it split and, uh, <laughs> and everything started hanging out. I was naked on stage in, in Texas on the first DJ tour. <laughs> and, uh, I didn't realize that they had a, an armed cop, you know, in every venue in Texas, it was different oh, down there. Of course. And, uh, so I just went with the show naked cause I just didn't care. It was degeneration. So Jack Flanagan rest his soul, uh, came to the side, my road manager, and he just grabbed me and he said, Jesse, cut the naked shit or you're going to jail. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so I went in the dressing room and I put on a raincoat. And I finished the rest of the show with my uh, black punk rock overcoat, raincoat thing. And that you was it. a Jim and, Morrison moment, man. Yeah, yeah. So we'd always joke, me and Jack Flanagan, who had recently passed away, about cut the naked shit or you're going to jail. <laughs> and that was because these pants would blow out. Um, sometime 
around that same time, we would hang out at a club called the Continental on Third Avenue, and Roger, the bartender, would let us take over the club, uh, me and my band, D-Generation, make cassette tapes, yes, cassettes of mixes, yes, yes. break bottles out of sport. I don't know what was going on. It was to drink free stater, light the place on fire, get on the stage, light, sex, action. You know, I don't do a lot of drugs, but it was a dancing, you know, stacking chairs up in some kind of Lord of the Flies ritual of, you know, <laughs> taking pictures of all this. And we would just take over the place till six, seven in the morning. And it was probably doesn't sound like too intelligent or too great, but it was super fun. And we break all these bottles. And I remember Bud had those very thick, um, very thick kind of Budweiser uh, bottles that had the thick red glass or that brown mm. glass, and they were smashed all over the bar. And Roger, when he really loved you, he's this big, like, you know, <laughs> kind of man mountain guy, and he had a lot of soul and he just supported our group. But when he had a few drinks, he'd like to hug you or throw you around, or yeah, he was right. kind of a tough, you know, rough and tough guy. So the bar is trashed, and you brought, and Roger just grabs me, he just drags me across the bar to give him a hug or whatever to pull me onto the bar. We'd get on the bar and dance, and he drags me across the bar, and these thin pants, it's covered in glass, and this big uh, chunk goes oh, right up my left oh. ass cheek. And, and, it's, and it's bleeding it's in there it's like this big piece of bud glass oh. and i was like ah so i went to the dirty continental bathroom and i just like pulled it you know out of my ass cheek <laughs> not my ass so cheek, and i dropped it into the sink and i could still hear the sound and look see the way it, it was like a big piece there and it just fell into the sink and i went back on it and i had, had a scar i don't know i haven't i don't look down there that often so i don't know but but that was it and i just teased a roger i was like you fucking like you know i was bleeding that fucking all over my pants <laughs> that that was it but that was indicative of what those nights were like i was once downstairs uh you know uh spending time with a lady in the basement and and suddenly the whole place was on fire and i oh. came running up with, with my pants practically off coming up there thinking i was going to die and they were just putting the stage smoke on it to try to scare me and smoke me out <laughs> 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 that's very nice now what what did what was his reaction when uh when you came out of the bathroom and like, yeah, you just you just dragged me across the bar and a piece of glass went into my ass. Like, uh, you know, he, he was just he would laugh it all off, and just crack <laughs> it up. You know, the guy was a wise Weisenheimer, you know, just that kind of thing. He had a buddy, this guy, Darren, and they'd come in there some nights and they'd be stand, sitting on the stage naked, smoking cigarettes, drinking beers, having a conversation or. Sure, sure. But, you know, there'd be things like that. There was girls from the Luna Chicks and Jimmy from Murphy's Law. People would be just be throwing things and breaking things. In fact, one time somebody threw a, a, a mug and, and it hit one of our dear friends and it was this complete accident. We all were just like, wow, we got to like chill out, you know, with the throwing and breaking stuff. Right, but, you right. know, we were in our early 20s and yeah. it's fun to break stuff somehow. I don't know what, where we got that from, but you know, I think I once took a Scooby-Doo movie projector made of plastic and threw it off a building when I was about seven. So I guess, you know, it's addictive. It's <laughs> contagious. Well, it came full circle because... Cause I was, I was watching it, you know, it's funny you brought up Jimmy. Cause when, you know, we did that, that short tour together and you had Jimmy come out with you. Um, that was like a cool, uh, moment for me that went full circle because I have a very young memory of being at Coney Island high for, I think it was Toby Morris's like 27th birthday party. And it was like H2O and Crown of Thorns at Coney Island High. Wow. And it was like a packed out show. I was maybe 15, 16, I'm not sure. And, uh, and watch Jimmy 
you know, get into it and have like a a kerfuffle with somebody else where some <laughs> bottles ended up being broken. I don't know exactly what happened. And then I'm, you know, I'm sitting on tour 20 years later and I'm like, wow, this is the guy who ran that place and the guy from Murphy's Law who I was watching it. And 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 to think that, I don't know, you guys inspired me to go to bars and just break bottles a little bit. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh God. Like, just don't yeah. sit on them. Yeah. This is this is your unorthodox, you know, uh way of spreading punk rock joy through <laughs> through the youth, Jesse. You pulled yeah, it off. There you go. So it sounds like there was a few people there that night, but do you have any idea who might have told me that story? Well, um, I you know, that that's a tricky one. I guess I I'll throw a few guests out there. Um uh, I'll throw you three. Howie Pyro, Roger Davis, who dragged me across the bar, or uh, I don't think it would be Tony Mann who, who made the pants. But, um, yeah, that, uh, or Lara. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Lara. Nope. It was the Atomic Elf, my friend. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> I wasn't even going that far into the band. But, right, Atomic Elf, all the way from North Carolina. Ricky Great. Backus. Uh, um, awesome. Yeah, I was trying to find somebody that wouldn't be too obvious. Yeah, but, well, he moved away. You don't think about him, but I'm in touch with Ricky. He's sweet. He's the yeah. best. Oh, the, yeah. Right. But listen. So obviously, Woo, I have a, a few. Bit. I have a few of these. <laughs> I'm going to ask you another one because I personally want to hear this story. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and uh, and we kind of segued into it anyways, talking about Coney Island. But tell me that story of trying to get Joey Ramone onto the roof of Coney Island. Um, well, we would do these barbecues on the 4th of July in different times. Uh, Michael Sticker, who worked for me as a stage manager and worked at Bauer at, uh, Coney Island high. And he loved to do barbecues and Jimmy G and Jack Flanagan, a lot of people were really into them. And we just thought, wow, there's this great, great roof up there. And this could be a, a great place to use this and look out over St. Mark's. It wasn't very punk rock of us guys, but it was a city <laughs> barbecue. And we had a couple over there and Joey, you know, was battling his health in his later years. And he kept it a secret for many years until it kind of came out that he had had uh, lymphoma, but he had such a great heart and soul. And, you know, you meet a lot of your heroes and Joey is one of the guys that when you met him, um, it was just how you wanted to be. Like he wasn't, he was just so open. If you went to his house, he always gave you a gift, like a signed t-shirt or a poster. Uh, he, his mo a lot of musicians that you do meet might be women or 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 let's say sex or drugs or money um and power and he just really loved rock and roll i mean this wasn't a guy who was chasing ladies was doing a lot like when i knew him he just just loved he'd call up in the morning jacked up on coffee and he'd leave <laughs> long messages just like what are you listening to what about this great new band i mean when i met lucinda williams when i first heard lucinda williams on a steve earl record he said what are you listening to and i said i heard this woman i gotta buy her records and he said i know her i'm like joey how do you know he's like i was on like one of those songwriter panels with her the bottom line <laughs> like a writer's in the round and like he just was so excited excited about things he'd come and dj at coney and he'd throw he was very big into his birthday parties okay. and uh one year uh summer sam movie came out Su- uh, summer of sam the son of sam flick the uh spike lee, uh, the spike lee and one, we went yeah. to see it me him uh, went to uh we went to um the movie theater on third avenue and we saw it and 
you know, he wasn't that well, but he was still Joey. And, and in the middle of the film, he was snoring. And I looked at him, and he's sleeping. And, I, you know, I never had too many people I knew that would sleep in movies. It was like something <laughs> your grandfather did. But he was sleeping. And then we got out of the theater. He goes, that was pretty good. <laughs> he was sleeping. But we went out to Jimmy's. Uh, Gestapo would do, Jimmy G from Murphy's, would do a barbecue out in Queens. And we went out there, and we hung out in the backyard. And Jimmy couldn't believe that I brought Joey to his house to a barbecue. And we're eating and talking. And Joey loved that. And it was a long day. We went to a movie. It was 4th of July, like it just was. We went to a barbecue. And then I dropped him off at 3rd Avenue, his apartment. He was like, Jesse, you know, you want to come upstairs and like watch a movie? And I was like shot. We had been in traffic. We drank at the barbecue. I saw a movie. And, you know, you had to kind of worry about him a little bit, too, because, you know, he walked a little slow and he just he felt that he was fragile. So it was right. it was a little stressful to, you know, to make sure he was OK all day. Yeah. So I was like, Joey, I'll see you next time. And of course, there wasn't many more months for a next time. I wished I went upstairs now and watched 10 movies with him and, never, you know, enjoyed every last sandwich but it 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 was that so he cared so much and we did this barbecue and um up on the roof to get there you had to climb like an inside ladder inside coney island high from the second floor up and you know you had to have your muscles and go up this ladder like a you know some kind of fireman or something and, <laughs> right, and right. get up there it wasn't really a place that was set up for recreation and he really wanted to get up there so bad and and uh everybody really really tried and pushed to get him up onto that roof and he you know his bones everything was weak from his anti-cancer uh as he called it the maltov cocktail that he would drink right. to, to fight the cancer because they couldn't give him chemo and and uh and just with the spirit he got up there and and you know everybody helped him up to to do that i mean joey just had so much heart and uh i miss him i miss the friendship but i also miss him around new york as one of these people you would just see and and, and make you feel like wow this is why i live here you know like this guy walks the streets and and he was very present like joe strummer and a lot of our heroes i think it, when you met these people they they gave a lot of themselves to you and i think they appreciated you appreciating them so. right i love the fact too from that story that like it seemed as if he had no intention of ever leaving new york or leaving that scene you know when so many people in his position would be like oh yeah you know i'm getting a place up in hudson valley you know to like you know, stretch out my legs or something, but yeah, so he, he lived so on ninth and third and he threw his birthdays at Coney Island high and continental. And he, yeah. you know, we were going to uh, open Bowery electric. It was going to be called, uh, well, he, him and his brother were interested in being our partners and he was sober then. So he didn't really want it to be focused on drinks, which probably would have been rough to do without selling booze. He wanted to call it like when eggs collide. And he's like, Jesse, we should have like eggs. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound too fun, but he passed away, of course, was was so sad. We opened the club a bunch of years later, which ended up being on the corner of Joe Ramon Place, right. which uh, yeah, not right. because of Eggs Collide, but because of Arturo's loft where him and Didi lived, but it happens to be second and Bowery. And it's always nice to see the sign yeah. with his name. He would have loved that. And and each year they started to put the sign higher and higher because people would steal it. Yeah. And I keep putting it up higher. <laughs> <laughs> Typical. Um, so, well, that's it's probably impossible to guess who told me that one. Do you want to take Poppins. a shot? No, 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 no. It was Lindsay. All right, is today her birthday, Lindsay? Ooh, I don't know. I'm bad with birthdays. 
Oh, it's my at, wife's birthday. I don't look at Facebook oh, enough. Happy birthday. happy birthday, Stephanie. Stephanie, happy birthday. All right. This <laughs> might be airing on a different day, but cut that out or keep it in. But happy birthday, Stephanie. <laughs> She's not nice enough to watch the children as I interview someone on her birthday, okay. you know? Oh, cool. Uh, but, I, you know, speaking of this, there's something I want to talk to you about. It's like I feel like from conversations with you that you know just about every person in the world. Um, particularly in music and having to do with New York City. It, how do you like personally balance the time needed for close friends and close family and then also taking the time to nurture all those relationships? Like, h- how do you balance that? Um, I think I have like Wheaties in the morning and a high powered spirulina green drink. Now, I, <laughs> I, a friend of mine said the other day that on the most private and social person that they know or something. And I was like, yeah. for, I didn't take it as an insult. I, I was like, I kind of get that. Yeah, I relate I to that. I yeah. don't make a lot of new friends. Like my close friends, new friends I have are people I met maybe in the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Like I have a small circle. I grew up with a bunch of guys on the hardcore scene in uh, the early 80s. And uh, they're from Queens, guys like my friend Rizzo and Carco, a lot of Italian guys uh, that, you know, we just got into this and, and we're friends for life. And, and even Degeneration was a band of guys that grew up together. Right. Uh, I, you know, I, I you know, I, I know Brad, so I used to go see his band, the Yub Boys in, in oh, the God. 80s. And, you know, <laughs> uh, and then, of course, but like, I, I know a lot of other people that I really care about. And, and we have an aberration or, you know, a, a certain passion and a shared thing. So I'm in touch with a lot of people, but I have a small circle of where things that are really family. And it's not gotcha. that those other relationships aren't meaningful, but they're not people that you talk to like every day. And, right. and uh, so it's, it's about, I mean, look with the technology and with phones and with, you know, computers and all this stuff and uh, social media, you know, there's a lot of, you can stay in touch, but it's also a lot of inundation that, that can really take away from being a writer or being a creative yes, person. And exactly. it's draining just to get back to people. So sometimes it takes a few days and then some night I'll sit up in bed and I'll scroll back. Thank God they got the scroll button. You could see who you didn't get back <laughs> right, to. And right, right. the guilty Jew can write everybody back at three in the morning. <laughs> but um, there's some of that. And, and people have to understand, I also have learned from, other friends of mine that probably know more people and just that, you know, you, you can't, you have to give some for yourself. You can be open and, and you're not dissing somebody by not staying in total touch all the time. And then when you go out in the world, you know, it's there. I, I've told people that, that I care about, you know, it's like, and people have told me like, Hey, if we don't see each other, we don't talk, it'll always be the same. When I see you, it'll always be like, just where it was like where we have that thing. And, right, uh, sure. and it's nice. You don't need to have to, you know, just keep in touch, but it can be overwhelming and uh, it definitely can be stifling to try to stay in communication with so many people. I don't know if that's the right answer, but that's kind of the way I feel. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I was getting at. Cause I definitely, you know, like you said, I find myself, Oh, I'm like, Oh, I just texted and communicated for two hours, but I, I didn't hit like all these people I need to hit and need to stay closer to and need to put, more effort into those relationships to keep them solvent. So it's, it's just a weird, uh, I guess a weird mix to have to balance sometimes. And then who gets the time and who doesn't get the time. It's like putting together a list of like who comes to your wedding. I feel like, I'm yeah, like, you're gonna oh, leave somebody out. That's yeah. why at some point you don't thank people on a record because you're exactly. gonna thank every motherfucker you know, and you're gonna forget <laughs> the guy that gave you your first right, drum set. Exactly. You know? <laughs> but uh, but you know, I think that. 
The old days, yeah, you had to make a phone call, and that was longer. It's nice that we can go bop, 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 bop with a text, and yeah, that's yeah. done. But in the old days, when a machine message came in on a voice on a voicemail or an answering machine, you didn't have people didn't expect that you they knew you got it and you got to get right back to them because right. they know it's like yeah you played it when you wanted to you got back to people it wasn't like you got a ding in your pocket and how come you didn't call me back and some people could even tell if you got their message I don't I know. know how you know Terrifying. fucking crazy secret agent they get but but uh, yeah it's a thing like that but I think with Instagram as much as it can be kind of annoying. It's also a way that we all see what we're doing and liking somebody's thing. I like my friend's stuff just to say, Hey, I'm in your corner. Like I'm happy you're alive. Sure. And, and yeah. some of that, some of that I'll take as much as I, you know, like mystery and the romance of people having privacy and, you know, not being so in your face with everything. So. Well, I got to interject here and tell Benny a little story about the hardest working man in showbiz, Jesse Mallon. <laughs> Because <laughs> no, maybe no. you're, you know, forget Instagram and all that. Back in the 90s, I think it was the Village Voice dubbed you the mayor of the East Village. Was that who did it? It was the Post, and I, I hate that. Yeah, the, the mayor. I know, I'm the, sure the, you the fucking post. hate it. Wow. But, but honestly, <laughs> seriously, it was totally deserved because it's, as, as far as I can recall, if you had a band of any size in the East Village in the 90s, Jesse would come to your show, every fucking show, every right. fucking night. Like, you made the rounds of, like, Continental and CBs and whatever, like, uh, brownies, whatever was fucking open, dude. I never did not see you at a show of any size and on any night. Like, well, yeah, I think the way it started was I had a band when I was a little kid and, you know, loved going to clubs. And I started doing that, like I said earlier, when I was 12 and 13, Heart Attack put out their first record when I was 14. And there were no rules. And we were so excited after seeing bands like Kiss from the nosebleed cheap mezzanine where you felt so disconnected that you could really be connected to this thing. And then A7 on Avenue A was a place where it went till six in the morning. And, you know, the scenes just... It became a family outside of a family, and to, and we all found each other without cell phones, without um, you know computers. We just used the the Schwartz, you know. We just we found right. each other on these corners. You just knew water found its own level, and and uh, I, I my band Heart Attack broke up, and and I started a group called Hope, which is a lot more like what I do now, uh, influenced by the Replacements and Springsteen and Elvis Costello and the Jam songwriter stuff, little credence. And that's when I would go see your group, Brad, and at that time, me and my buddy Carco. But I couldn't get that band off the ground, and I, I needed a way to to carry my gear around, but also uh, I didn't want to work stupid jobs. And, and I was you know I was a teenager. I needed to pay for rehearsals. So I got a van, and I was a moving guy, and I put oh, flyers wow. up around the village, and I moved – uh, as a joke, I always say everybody from the Swans to Barbara Streisand and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and everything in between from the music building. And I put the flyers up at CB's and they'd give me all the work. So I was like Johnny Stiff, except I lifted. <laughs> and then the thing that I think some artists once said, uh, Adam Roth, another guy who's passed, a funny, great, talented guitarist. Adam Roth once said I was at a gig and he was like, and Jesse Mallon's here and but he said that when I moved the bands, I, I worked for a lot of groups like Raging Slab and um, Rat at Red R or whatever, the Karen Black, all the bands, Luda Chicks. And I do out-of-town gigs too, but I would 
if I was working for a band, I would come back and see them play in the club. So uh, I would be out. I'd see a lot of the sets when I was doing that. And then, then we started doing those loft parties called the Green Door. And that would make more money in one night, which we didn't plan it. Sometimes the things that make you money in life are the things that you don't uh, plan to do. You do them for fun. And like Degeneration was a joke band. I was doing these earnest bands where, you know, writing songs, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like trying to be Bruce Springsteen and Fogarty or whatever. And then I said, you know what, Howie Pyro, why don't you play? I'm going to pretend to be like Steve Bader's. I'm going to take my shirt off. We're going to get drunk. I'm, I'm going to sing these songs. And then that took off after years of trying <laughs> to like do an honest thing. We're like, yeah, this is at a party. This is fun. So we threw these parties and that became a bigger business than the moving business. And in fact, wow. was the catalyst to say, well, we'll take over the whole club here on Coney Island High, you know, and then that was uh, the idea was a club for the kids by the kids. And I, I called it Coney Island High because I loved going to Coney Island it was one of my favorite places in the world. And even though that's in Brooklyn, Max's Kansas City wasn't in Kansas City. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. like that Coney Island High. And then I liked rock and roll high school. I thought, let's make this. The place looked like a school. The second floor, the detention lounge. The middle floor, it was the regular floor. And so I hired everybody I knew. I didn't know that half of these people were going to fucking rip me off or oh, yeah. they weren't thinking they were because they're giving away free shit. But as yeah, you know now, right. that's essentially stealing. If you work at Toys R Us and you give toys away and take tips, <laughs> it's stealing. But in the bar business, it's like, yeah, that's, ah, that's Omar, you know, but, but, uh, but it, it became a thing like that. So we didn't put money away. Plus I was on tour with a major label deal and a tour bus opening for kiss and social yeah, distortion. Right. And I thought, you know, I had it made. So I didn't run it like that. And it was in my 20s. So by the time the city came down on us, we uh, we, we we really didn't have money saved away to fight this 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 crazy legal fees and being locked up and closed and padlocked because of the dancing. And then we stopped the dancing. And, you know, and that was the thing. But before the clubs opened, even in those days, driving the van, we'd go out and, and some of the guys, uh, Tom McElf, Ricky Backus would tell you. You know, we wanted to have a bar deal before we had a record deal. And that meaning that we could drink free in every bar in East Village. <laughs> so if we went out on a Tuesday night, we wanted to be able to drink free at Continental, at Brownies, at, at this, at that, and at Sidewalk. And and somehow we pulled that off, which now I would find totally offensive if somebody tried to do that. I'd be <laughs> sure. like, what a cheapskate. But we're 50 and you should be able to pay for your drinks. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. But yeah, we're yeah. all living, you know, together in a small space. So, you know, we'd go out a lot, but also there was a lot happening as funny as the, the late 80s i loved the hardcore scene in the early 80s it, it felt like brand new and exciting and and you didn't know what was going to happen and the late eight the mid 80s didn't connect for me it was a really weird time i felt in new york everybody wanted to sign bands from athens georgia and you know there wasn't a lot of love and then the late 80s at the continental divide uh, the senders and the willies and the there was something going on it was getting exciting mm -hmm. again and then the early 90s you know, we really wanted to create a scene that was fun and decadent because you had the war on drugs and the war on sex and everything was like funky hip hop, like bands with shorts and socks on their penises. And, you know, like we just wanted something that was decadent, like the kind of scene we read about in the 70s. So we tried to create like that rock and roll fun thing and play records by the Cramps and Sly Stone and the Stooges and and mainly to get people to dance and to dress up and, and just just have fun. And uh, and so the, it was going out every night was, you know, you're going to see the goops, you know, and they got the song The Day I Met Iggy or they got, you know, 
New York Loose is doing this, or you've got Lunachicks and Murphy's Law, and it, and it dipped in where this kind of punky glam rock and roll scene was kind of mixing with hardcore into another and different bands and, you know, had wetlands and, and you know, there was always places. So that the scene in the nineties might not have made the history books for changing the world or the records or, or anything, but eventually after degeneration got signed and then a lot of bands got signed, I don't know if it was because of us, but like around that time, everybody, a lot of the groups got a shot, you know, to get, to get in the, in the race when, when a, a record deal meant something. Right. <laughs> right. How much of that now, like looking in hindsight was the activity of the nineties, especially down in like St. Mark's place and stuff. Was that, was that almost like the beginning of the gentrification down there? You think? Well, like, it definitely like where was. the arts were coming in and, and cool places to eat were coming in and the beginning of it was great. And then, you know, 15, 20 years later, it, you know, turned into what it is now. Sure. Well, now it's like, you know, it's Tokyo over there. It's, it's a whole, it's a Japanese block of, yes. you know, which is it's fine for whatever, but it's not a lot of what, what St. Mark's place maybe traditionally Still got was. rays. Still got rays. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> rays uh, down on Avenue A, but Gems Bar closed. You know, the gap came, came in in the 80s. There were signs of this happening. Yeah. And when we were getting shut down for dancing, we said, well, what, what's the story? Can we get a cabaret license? And they said, no, you're zoned residential. And I looked outside on St. Mark's and I said, yeah. we're zoned residential. The Pyramid has a cabaret. Webster all does. We're zoned residential. And this block is like, you know, crack, punk rock, Sesame yeah. Street. You could buy yeah. crack, you could buy condoms, <laughs> you could buy, you know, pipes, you could buy T-shirts. Like, this is really a residential block? Hello? Yeah. Yeah. And, nope. and some of the stores would protest us, too. We would have kids lined up for hardcore shows all the way down the block, and you'd have people that had record shops that were upset that was blocking their thing or bookstores. And so we would go to these community board meetings, and they were like witch trials. Like, people from the community would want to shut us down too and wow. i'd be like dude these are kids that grew up in this neighborhood working for me as bartenders people like allegra who lived on fifth street or this one or that one and and we're putting on music that's bringing kids from the five boroughs and beyond into the city that like records and are and food and they're coming down here yeah. and you're giving us a hard time and like this is the like you, okay we're doing something bad and that was like the attitude and i think behind that attitude was yeah we'll clean this shit up so we can have higher rents we right. can fucking you know make this this condo you know brass and glass kind of dead ass shit that that you know we're looking at now that whole corner is wiped out where continental was yeah. and you know what's going to be coming there uh for those listening around the world who have no idea what i'm talking about but like you know every every part of uh and and then you add the covid into it and i'm just you know i was out on my bike the other day and i was just looking at so many businesses that aren't going to make yeah. it and Sure. When you hear about the Troubadour in L.A. that's been there or these wonderful historic places that and I always think that L.A. has so much more history that doesn't get erased where in New York we can't keep a place like if you go to L.A. you can go to the whiskey and you could go where Otis Redding played or, you know, it was yeah, opened in 1960. Right. You could go to where Elvis drank at the Formosa or Marilyn Monroe had a martini at Musso and Frank's and it's still there. Troubadour, Elton John yeah, here. Yeah. CBGB's couldn't even last or yeah. the Lone Star. We can't keep a place because it's a smaller island or something with real estate but like things just don't make it the same way i guess the bitter end is on bleaker street and that goes back maybe hopefully you know this is going to reset the board on so many things and uh you know as a person that's an artist but also a fan of of 
of New York and, and, and also a, a bar owner, a club owner, it's, it's wild. It's, it's, it's going to be a big old change. And uh, yeah. maybe that's happened for many generations, but I didn't really see it coming like this. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I just like slam, boom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's, it's hard to see when you're inside of it, you know, like, yeah. like I have family who moved, even my aunt and uncle are still on the Upper West Side, but they went there in like 1971. And then, you know, watch the whole thing, you know, go, you know, change around them. And then being from New Jersey, you know, like my, you know, Coney Island High was one of the first places I would get into in the city. And, you know, I take the path to the cube and get out and make sure I went to like Ray's or Dojo. Or, <laughs> Dojo, yeah. You know, Dojo. Like one of these places. Listen, Dojo is the reason that I've shit at CBGB's. So, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. Oh, boy. Oh, no. I, even sauce. I haven't had to do that. Yeah, you know, I've sat on the throne. No, you know, while every, about a hundred oh. people came in, and you're shrug. still alive. You live to tell. You you still got your legs. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, that's the joke is that I can't get COVID after that. I don't know. Um, For those but, who may not know, we should say that, like, besides all the other horrible things about CB's bathrooms, <laughs> when you came down the stairs, you could go to the <laughs> men's room on the left or the women's room on the right, but the men's room was just this long thin room with yeah. a toilet at the back no fucking door so if you had to sit on that i mean you were up for display taking a leak but like and I, if you had to sit on toilet, that toilet yeah <laughs> and on top well, of that remember the toilet was elevated yeah elevated. It was gonna be, so you were literally like i was gonna king. say that yeah it was you were up. a king on their throne looking down at the peons that were peeing like yeah. as i was as you'd I was be thinking. lucky if there's a seat and you'd be lucky if there's paper so you know oh yeah oh no that's a hover that's a hover <laughs> yeah. for sure yeah, you're not that's right hey, man, uh, listen my my bad stomach has put me in a lot of strange places but it, maybe it got me ready for touring you know because because all my scruples went away before I hit the road, you know? <laughs> yeah, you got to learn. Jimmy G set me up with a, a knapsack on my first tour with baby wipes, baby gold bond medicated powder. <laughs> yeah. He gave me the whole tour setup, him and Todd Youth. Nice. The emergency <laughs> pack. Yeah. Oh, so, boy. So, I, you know, I heard that you, you tried out at one of those open tryouts at CB's in 84, right? When you were a kid with heart attack. Uh, I wish it was that late because I'd be younger. Um, actually, this 4th of July was the last heart attack gig was 84, was uh, July 4th oh, okay. um, um, then. But I, 1980 or so, I oh, think wow. I was 12 um, years old. And I, I saw that in the paper that CBGB's had an audition night. And the only rule was that you had to play original music because covers were pretty big out in Queens and parts of the city. They had all these tribute bands. Even Twisted Sister was like a cover band in the beginning. And right. um, and we we called up. So I called for my school payphone. I formed a band called Heart Attack. Everybody was 12. We rehearsed in some kid's basement. And uh, one guy was 16, but everyone else 12. And we all drove in and we went down to the Bowery and we did the Monday night audition. And it was frightening down there to us, you know. Yeah, but, right. but we looked at the stage and here was this huge PA and looked at the photos that we had uh, – scene of Blondie and the Talking Heads and the Dead Boys and it was that stage and the Ramones and, and we played and and uh, we failed the audition and and the reason I think uh, we failed was that you're supposed to bring as you can imagine now as I would know at least 15 people and that they had to have drank we didn't know 15 uh, people in the city that could do that and we didn't know anybody sure. that drank legally and right. had any money 
uh, we knew some glue sniffers from PS193, but, you know, <laughs> but um, we, and, and, uh, but, you know, they didn't tell me that. So I said, well, what happened? You know, I found out a little bit later that, that we didn't bring anybody, but they said, not that we were great, but they said, you know, you missed it. And at the time I was listening to what I knew as the three food groups of punk, the Ramones, the dead, the Ramones, the pistols and the clash. Right. And so it was bar chord driven stuff. And we're young. And they said, you know, you missed that. That shit's dead. It's all over. You know, you, you got to try something new. And I said, like what? And they were like, yeah. rockabilly, <laughs> like ah. new, new romantic. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to dress up as a pirate, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, this art funk thing was going on. So, so that was it. But we got a gig out of it at Max's Kansas City. Somebody saw us that night and we ended up playing on Johnny Thunder's birthday. And it was fun to play uh-huh. Max's. Cool. But the scene was in flux in 1980, all that stuff, you know, Blondie was playing disco, the Ramones were trying to get a hit, Clash were getting funked out. And so for a kid, you know, 13, 14, that's got testosterone and wants what we called raw music, you know, the bands like Dead Kennedys and the West Coast stuff was a bridge till, till Mm -hmm. like I went further East on Avenue Way and bands that weren't in the Village Voice newspaper, which the weekly you'd see on We Pace flyers on buildings. And I had heard about the Bad Brains and next thing you know, I saw them play for like two bucks on Avenue A, 171A, and like it changed my life. And suddenly these guys were lending us equipment and bills were forming. We ended up at age seven with groups like False Prophets and Kraut, Reagan Youth, and right. uh, Vinny Stigma's old band, The Eliminators, and, um, and Heart Attack would you know play. And then suddenly that started to build the early days of Heart Attack, of hardcore. And uh, I found you know, something that was happening. I mean, Reagan was president. There was a potential war in Central America draft. There was stuff happening on the West Coast. I met the guys from D.C. at a Black Flag gig, Ian and Henry, and a lot of the guys that would, you know, go on to do, you know, Faith and other Mm -hmm. groups. And it was all just each city. And by the time we went on tour when I was 15, you know, different towns, they took care of us. You stayed on people's couches. And again, no cell phones. It was just, you, you connected. Yeah. And uh, by the time 1984 came to mention that, uh, July 4th, the last heart attack had done three records. And, wow. uh, the last gig was at CB's with HR and, uh, Cro-Mag's first gig to give you an idea wow. of the changing of the guard with, <laughs> with Eric yeah. Casanova was the singer before, okay. uh, for John right. and Harley, but Harley, you know, he had the band. And, and so it, that was the, the, the last heart attack gig. And the reason I, I stopped that scene for me, uh, I was 16 was I felt that the scene had gotten too metal and too macho. Right. Okay. And those are two things that I tried to get away from in Queens, New York was all that stuff. So, you know, to me, hardcore was about men, women being open-minded, not judging sure, people because right. they didn't wear the outfit and have the shaved head and they were soft and all that shit. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the noodling. And when that metal hardcore mix started to happen, I, you know, it's just, that uh, wasn't my flavor. So, so you weren't so, a huge leeway fan. I, I respected them, you know, and you know, saw them <laughs> play with the bad brains a bunch. I, I always yeah. could like a tight band. I mean, bad brains got a little noodly on the guitar. Dr. No sure started did. here. Van yeah, Halen. Sure did, but you yeah. know, it's what you do with it. And, uh, you know, I love motorhead, but that's a rock and roll band, not, you know, metal. Like, you know, it's yeah. just like, to me, the puffy sneakers in the law, I just didn't get that. I, Props to Anthrax and everybody for keeping it going, but it wasn't, you know, what was happening wasn't my thing. Yeah, I feel you. I kind of wound up in the same place just many years later. Um, but so, you know, apropos of the scene in New York in like the 80s and 90s and to what's going on currently, I was curious, like what the relationship to the punk scene in those days and the hardcore scene and the NYPD 
Like, were there a lot of clashes? Did the police like come down on this scene or was it so underground like it was a little ignored? Similar to how it is now in a way where these last few months where the cops presence and especially, you know, recently where the cops are just like took a backseat and like down here, you know, it used to be if you went east, F third Avenue, second Avenue, first Avenue, if you went east, it was Avenue A adventurous, Avenue B bold, Avenue C crazy. And Avenue D dead, oh and um, you know it, it. So the cops didn't really care that much about what we were doing, and you could drink right. beer in the street like you can now, and hang out in the street like you can now. And, and so there wasn't so much of that until uh, you rode the trains. I remember as a kid being a punk, the transit cops, and I think the Beastie Boys sang about this. I think transit cops were something that were. Uh, in your face and offensive. And if you looked weird, I mean, they fucked, they, they killed that guy, Michael Stewart on 14th street, mm. a graffiti artist. Uh, they, there was some of that stuff with power somehow. And then you had the guardian angels in the subway. And I didn't know whether to be scared of them or feel safe when they came on the train. But right, if you right. dress like a punk rocker, it wasn't like now where everybody's like unity. And there's these festivals like Coachella and people like all kinds of music. If you were into your kind of thing, you were just into that. And people, I'm not into violence, but they would fight for what they believe. Like when you see Quadrophenia, people, mods fighting the rockers, like, you know, I, I didn't like hip hop because I rode the trains with these kids and, and they were, not cool with me. We're both going back to Queens and shit would happen. So, you know, you had a whole tight to your little world and, and the cops, I think if, if you're going to get into it, I remember they once sprayed, they took the spray paint away from one of my skinhead friends and they sprayed the back of, of him and his other friend's head lean against the wall and they sprayed their heads with the spray paint. Um, I got arrested during Giuliani time. I went to jail twice when Giuliani came and he wanted to clean up the city. And I really felt the presence. The cops would go around these vans and anybody, if you're walking with your girl or your friend and they were smoking a little roach or weed and you weren't, they take everybody through the system. I waited my whole life to play Madison Square Garden. I played with Kiss, opened up and Kiss were uptight that night and they kind of cleared the dressing rooms and we had to leave. So I was going down to St. Mark's to Coney Island High, funny enough, to celebrate that I played the garden, you know, I'm yeah, a New Yorker. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. I, I had took a rolling rock out of the dressing room and I'm not even on 7th Avenue. I'm under the pavilion of Madison Square Garden and these two cops roll up on me and, and they that's it. They're putting me on the cuffs and I said, look, here's my laminate. Here's Gene Simmons. Like, I'm a New Yorker. I waited my whole fucking life to play the garden. They're yeah, like, let me open, have a fucking rolling rock. Yeah. Open container. And, and that oh. was two days in the tombs. And then another time I trained for the marathon and I was putting up a flyer on St. Mark's for when D-Generation broke up, I had a band called Bellevue and I was a bridge band in between my solo career and the old band. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to be too cool to not go out and flyer. I'm going to go out and put some posters up. And yeah, yeah. Keep it. Brad probably saw yeah. me doing it. You know, and I put scotch tape and I 3M brand and I, I got arrested for that. For and wow. I was like, I don't have a police record, but they were just coming down on and, and you had to go through the system. And if you went through on the weekend, I mean, I missed the marathon that that I trained that I was in that cell. Oh, right. You know? Yeah, yeah, stuck for the weekend. Right? Yeah, I missed it, my friend. Yeah, so, but yeah, things like that. I mean, it was a feeling of it, but I think they pretty much let us go unless they were called. You could go after hours in those days. They wouldn't come down to CB's matinees if people driving over the bridge coming up Third Avenue would see this 
gang of kids just hanging out. But but it was the Bowery, and even as the Bowery changed up yeah. until the late '80s and into the really the early '90s is when they decided, all right, we're going to clean this shit up. But right. we used to have Forty Second Street, and and nobody else bought. It. I mean, I we put on our own shows at a guy named Giorgio Gamelski's loft in Chelsea. We put on a hardcore gig with MDC, DOA, uh, Reagan Youth, Murphy's wow. Law's first gig, Heart Attack, <laughs> False Prophets. And um, New Year's Eve, I want to say uh, 82, 83 or something like that it would be. Yeah. And and the cops came and uh, they, they said, what's going on here? It was loud. It was late. And we just threw them some cash. I remember the guitarist from the False Prophets, Peter, just <laughs> wow. handed them a lot of cash and they left. It was like the movies, like yeah. ministry, you know. So, yeah, yeah. They're crooked cops. Hey, Jesse, speaking of Giorgio's, like um, – I always thought that, I think, you know, unless you're from New York, you don't really know about the Green Door parties. And I feel like Green Door spawned, you know, this whole genre in New York, like squeeze box and the motherfucker parties. And I feel like then those parties went worldwide. And I really feel, I mean, I've got a limit. I'm, obje- I'm not objective about this, but I feel like Green Door really kind of started that whole scene. And, yeah, um, I mean, I think they gave us a lot of credit to it. I mean, like I said, we did Green Door out of necessity just to have fun. And I knew of this guy who had managed the Stones and managed the Yardbirds and produced them. This old Russian guy had a loft in Chelsea that he let bands rehearse at, and he had three floors, and he lived on the money that he rented it out. When I used to rent, when I used to, um, roadie for bands like i said with the van i would load bands in and out of there and on saturday night i remember they would i would load a group called the dos fur lines an old girl punk polka band and i remember <laughs> loading them through because Giorgio would rent the place out to anybody give him 500 bucks so on okay, saturdays right. it was called paddles and that was an snm club and uh it was the and so oh. we had to load the svt amp and everything else through like people tied up getting paddling <laughs> to get into the back room and lo- drop the gear and the middle of uh, their their festivities so uh so um you know Giorgio was just this open door and i i'd done these hardcore gigs there so when the 90s came around new year's eve we didn't want to be stuck in some club listening to you know corporate rock or whatever and, and we decided like let's just throw a party and let's uh let's play the records we love and encourage people to dance and let's get our girlfriends to sell beer. We'll buy it at the beer distributor for, you know, five bucks a case in Brooklyn and take my van and load it in and set up some cheap lights and turn it up loud. And we handed out flyers, you know, handbills, the old New York handshake with, you know, Paul Simon on smashing the bass and it said, save New Year's <laughs> Eve. The door was green. So we called it the green door. We didn't think of pornography or, old records from the fifties. We just, the door was green, you know? And, <laughs> and, uh, so people you, you came didn't bring they, up a paddle for good measure. None of that. <laughs> no <laughs> paddling, but everybody dressed up and they packed out and they danced and to see people on the dance floor, this made me so happy dancing to records that weren't being played on the radio, like the cramps and the Dickies and, and, you know, and the stooges and funkadelic and, and, uh, and, and that went on. Someone said, oh, do this again. Yeah. We were like, we thought this was just New Year's. And then suddenly we did it again and it became a thing. And uh, people would look forward to dressing up. And there was no rules because it wasn't a real club. There was uh, it would go after hours and the drinks were cheap. And, and, uh, and that moved to different clubs. And I was doing it every other week at a place called the Boy Bar on St. Mark's, 15 St. Mark's. It was a space that this guy, Paul McGregor, 
famous hairdresser had owned the building. And uh, he's the guy they modeled that movie Shampoo after. And he was a character. Oh. And he sold it to these guys that had a burrito place called Burritoville. Oh, and, um, yeah. And they took it over and they tried to do like a music venue called the Pozo Lounge slash Burrito Mexican Restaurant. <laughs> and they were stiffing bad. And it was a big building on St. Mark's. And I was doing my party with them every two weeks. And they said, why don't you do more of this? And we're not making money. So I went in there and I said, all right, I'll do this five nights a week or six, I'll do it seven nights a week. Just let me have, you know, piece of the action and we'll restructure a deal. And I want to be an owner and. And that's how Coney Island High came. But Green Door was a, a moving party for a while. We would do it at different lofts. We did it at some place on Houston. Some guy had a pool in his backyard. And, you know, it's not a pretty sight to see drunken punk people <laughs> wrecked at seven in the morning trying to swim. But <laughs> oh, they were the best fucking parties, man. Yeah. The best. <laughs> that's, uh, I, like I don't know if did, I'm explaining you... it right, but really to get people to dress up to dance and it was really be out there you know but it was a real like it was a really mixed crowd and like the music like you said would be anything it could be fucking disco it could be like hardcore it was like it was jesse i think you tapped into something here remember brad's been surrounded by kids for like a decade now (laughs) and i think i think in his head right now brad's wearing those really cool pants the really cool shirts he wore in the nineties. Uh, don't like even right get in your in your head right now. You are sweaty. You are dancing. You're probably on drugs. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you take a trip down memory lane, Brad. Um, so Jesse, you're going on thirty five years or so in the business now, in in some regard, right? This business we call show. Yeah, yeah. This show business. So you know, in your head. You know, you've accomplished so much in this time. What, what do you hope to accomplish from 2020 to 2030? Um, I hope to make better records. You know, I'll keep getting better at what I do. I, I feel like, you know, finally more comfortable with my voice, you know, singing after screaming for a lot of years and then sure. making solo records. I want to, you know, just be able to reach as many people as possible, make music, play to the crowds, do what I do and, and find a way to keep the, the lights on doing it and, and keep keep enjoying it, you know, whatever form or way that's going to be to get that out. I, um, I plan on writing a book. It sounds kind of grandiose, but I got a lot of stories. I don't want it to be just a rock book, more of like a memoir as a slice of life kind of coming of age thing with, with some rock and roll stuff. But I want to kind of do that, but I'm excited to finish this next record. And, you know, I still feel very hungry and, and I don't know after all this, how I'll be, but I feel like, you know, I still enjoy getting in, the van or the bus and getting out there and, and just living in that way. I don't know, maybe having some kids and figuring out wherever it goes. I mean, you, you set up certain plans, but certain things just happen as they go along, but to, to get the most out of this life and connect with people I love and, and do what I love, which right now is, is making music. You know, so. I love it. And do you, you think uh, you wind up working with Lucinda again in any context or did that kind of, change the fork in the road for you at all how, how you approach things i think we made a really great record together and, and i learned yeah, a lot i think great. every it producer you may work with you you know you learn something of course um yeah. we didn't know how that would go her and her husband tom overby it was just a a great thing and and so uh you know that that happened and i'm sure like you know the other day we were on, well in january it was like one of the last u.s tours she was we were on a boat tour outlaw country cruise she, 
said she wanted to do the, I want to do your next record. But, you know, it, she's busy on her thing and, and, and you just don't know. But I think we have a connection. And a lot of people say, like, I, I did a song many years ago with, with Bruce Springsteen and, and then we did a video for that song. And, you know, occasionally we'll sing that song at a charity and people will say, well, you know, are you doing this thing with Bruce? What, what do you, why don't you do something? I'm like, we did something like, that's great. Yeah. That's what it is. Like that happened. Right. Like, you know, so sometimes these things are just great to appreciate it and things grow and change. Those friendships are there, but you, you never know. I mean, you, you just go, but so that, like, I'm very proud of, of the, the writing I did with Lucinda and, and the work we did. And, and unfortunately it's the middle of this album cycle that we had another hundred shows to go that we right. got grounded, but, you know, I, I can't be the only one complaining. The whole world is in the same boat. But, um, yeah, I love her. I have such respect. I love her new record. I think that um, she's a great inspiration. There's a lot of people talking about, you know, from now till 2030, which is, is a really good question, Benny. It's just, you know, people like Nick Cave uh, and Lucinda, who I've seen as they've gotten older, get, I don't know if crazier is the word, but wilder and, like, tougher. Like, you go see Nick Cave now, to me it's like, nastier and he's in the crowd That's like true. like yeah, yeah. and he's this late 50s and i was years ago he was just some guy that i thought girls with black hair liked and he just like <laughs> you know moans about the whip song and the ship song and the boat <laughs> song but now i go see him it's like it's got the iggy pop thing and then it's got yeah. the tom waits thing and they, like so uh and lucinda her new record is just so guttural and just so, so i think there's hope even leonard cohen you watch their dylan he still makes very real records oh, so yeah. i think those rules have been broken and and if you just stay in stuff and you do i kind of saw that with uh, a band called suicide alan vega and marty rev that like they went through a lot of ups and downs i had been a fan since the 80s and some gigs they'd be playing like you know some little place on 14th street and then in time by the time it was towards the end they're getting awards and playing in russia and you know like you just got to stay with what you do and just keep going. It's sad to see Ramones and bands like that, that never got to live to see the fruits of their labor. But if you like to do it, you're an actor, you act, you're a runner, you run. And you just, you just got to just do it like that, making, you know, a new movie each year or whatever you do. Yeah. That's awesome, man. Well, I can't wait to see what you do, Jesse. I'm going to keep up on this career. Jesse, we are definitely going to have to do another podcast yeah. because we've definitely we'll, got a lot we'll more see. to talk about. But, but yeah. Benny, the, the last, one of the last memories I have of uh, of hanging with you was, was I, I want to say it was in Austin, Texas. And I think me and you were just sitting on road cases, like on the side of a stage at uh, uh, one of those, maybe uh, Austin City Limits Festival or something. And yeah, uh, right. you were playing with Gaslight with, with the replacements, I think, if I'm right. It's a double bill. And uh, and we were just sitting out there in, in the Texas heat at, you know, I think you guys went on back to back and we were just sitting on these big row cases talking about music. So it feels like it wasn't that long ago. And nah, then if you think about when those replacements and all those shows were, I guess it was a while ago, but uh, yeah, I just remember like being like, wow, this is great. Like the, the, you're out there, these guys I know from like New York, Jersey from Joe Sib and we're all out right. here. And yeah, all this yeah. is happening. You know, it <laughs> is awesome, man. It's pretty shocking for me too. Yeah. And, uh, but I remember even when I toured with you, I was trying to suck as many old New York degeneration stories out of you as possible. So I'm really glad I got to got a chance to do this and pick your brain, Jesse. Thanks a yeah. lot for coming on, man. Yeah, thank you both. Both of you guys yeah, keep thanks, doing man. it. All right, great. So, like I said, um, 
If there's anything you could do, it would be really, really appreciated. Sweetrelief.org. There are direct links to the Jesse's page uh, on our website and in the notes here. Goingofftrack.com. And uh, anything you could do would be really helpful. And if you have not listened to Jesse's music before, you should do so. He's a really great songwriter. Very touching, very New York. And, you know, check out some of the D-Gen stuff, too, because that was a blast. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.